How many of you enjoyed that congregational singing? I was looking over the audience and I could tell that because you were singing with your own voice, you had entered another dimension of worship. At the end of the 1400s, congregational singing was unheard of. If you went to a wealthy church, there would be a choir that would sing in Latin, which you did not understand unless you were in the very small percentage of people who were educated. But most of the time, you would have gone, if you went to a wealthy church, and you would have heard a choir singing, but it wouldn't have meant anything to you. Your, the majority of congregations were too poor for a choir. So there would have been very little, if any, music. Tonight we're going to look at the man who changed that, Martin Luther. He's called the father of congregational singing, because along with a bunch of the changes that he made, introducing congregational singing was one of them. I think I'm going to start by just getting you guys a little acquainted with Europe in the 15, around the turn of the 1500s. I have a laser that works this time. But you can see this is, this is France. The kings of France were of the house of Valois. You need to remember these names because they start to play a recurring process in the wars and the marriages. So of France, around this time would have been Francois I of the House of Valois. This was the Holy Roman Empire, which as Voltaire said was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But what it was, was it was a bunch of states and it was made up of a bunch of princes who would elect their CEO, who would be the emperor. And at the time, it would have been Maximilian. Here is where Spain, where you would have remembered Ferdinand and Isabella, where they married and joined two kingdoms. They're the ones who sent off Columbus, 1492. Up here is England. Does anybody know who which house of kings was in England around the turn of the century? It was the Tudors, starting with King Henry VII. So, it was a really a dark time for the church at the end of the 1400s. There are several problems. By the way, there is going to be a quiz at the end of each of this, and it is going to be boys versus girls again. So, I will try to highlight the stuff that is, and I'm going to be much more fair to the guys this time than I was last time. Because there were several girls that told me, we don't need your help. <laughs> Even though they clearly did. <laughs> so girls, you have lost your chance at mercy. You're going to have to do it on your own. By the way, there is a lot of information that I'm going to try to get to you in the next six or seven hours of lecturing. And normally dates are the most important part of history, but some of these dates I'm gonna ask you to pay close attention to because if I was to go strictly chronologically, we'd be all over the place. And I had a choice, do I either go chronologically or do I follow the developing storylines through Europe and through England and into the New World? And so I've chosen the latter of following developing storylines. So that means you're going to hear about some events 
in the 1700s, and then we're going to jump back to the start of the 1500s. And if you're not listening to the dates, you're going to think those events, you're just going to end up confused, which I may do a good job of confusing you anyway. But to pay attention to the notes. But at the end of the 1400s, there were several problems facing the church. First one was ignorance, both among the clergy, who a lot of them knew the Latin rites, but they didn't know what they meant. There was a survey done in England, I think of about 300 clergy. 40 of them didn't know the Ten Commandments, another 40 didn't know the Lord's Prayer, and around 40 didn't even know who the author of the Lord's Prayer was. Church, to people in the medieval times, was not a place where you go be informed. It was a place where you went and this magical ritual of mass, or the sacraments that the church could give you, took place. And it was all conducted in Latin. So you didn't understand what was being said. At mass, the priest would start with saying, hocus corpus meum, which means this is my body. And you know of the phrase hocus pocus? It used to be a, a magical phrase, hocus pocus, like abracadabra. It came from that because of the ignorance of the time. They didn't understand what the Latin stood for, so hocus corpus meum was slurred and corrupted into hocus pocus because that's all they thought the priest was doing, was performing a magical ceremony in which he changed the bread and the wine from ordinary elements into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And to the medieval mind, what happened in Mass was that Jesus was re-sacrificed. And that when you partook of communion, the sins that you kept accumulating were taken away again every time the Mass was done. So it was a very serious thing to have partake of the Mass. Why one of the sternest punishments you could receive in the medieval times was to be excommunicated because it meant that you were not allowed to partake of mass which meant you were stuck in your sins and the pope when he was trying to control whole nations would use the interdict he would say you would use the whole nation outlawed from using communion until the lord or king submitted to the pope's wishes so ignorance was a big problem. Not to, not to mention the fact that preaching was not heard of. There's always exceptions to these rules, but I'm talking about in general here. And the Bible. Luther didn't even see a Bible until he was, I think, 20, when he, when he went into a monastery. Five to 10% of Europe was literate. And even when you were, the scripture was only in Latin, which was the only translation that the Roman Catholics would allow. So people had no idea about the basics of theology. But what they did have a firm grasp on was their own mortality. Plagues would come through periodically. 
Remember we talked about the bubonic plague in the 1300s that wiped out something like a third of Europe? Well, this would periodically come to communities and wipe out sometimes 65, 70%. Now, the life expectancy of the times uh, it was also brutal. A quarter of babies did not make it out of infancy, and another quarter of those babies that did survive died before 18. So only half of babies born, not miscarried, half of babies born even made it to when you were an adult. They didn't understand bacteria. You could go from being completely healthy to getting a cold and a fever and being gone within a few days. So combined with this ignorance of theology was a terrible fear of your own mortality. Now the Catholic Church played up on this fear. They would be paintings depicting horrible sufferings in hell. There would be plays where someone would act out a person suffering in hell while the devil tormented them. It was part of the ritual the church would did. It greatly intensified people's fear because once people were afraid, then they could start eating out of the church's hand. Another problem facing the church was that it was grossly immoral. Chastity was part of the official church doctrine, but local congregations actually liked it when the priest had a mistress because then he was less likely to go after their daughters and wives. And the bishops who were over the priests, they liked it when the priest had a mistress because that priest then had to pay a fine or a fee to own the mistress to the bishop. Now when you were a bishop, you were over lots of smaller, I think the term is your, your diocese had several C's in it where the individual priests had their own congregation and your job was to be over it. Now the position of bishop was very desirable because you would get a lot of money because part of the money was divided up to going to the pope, some of it was, went to the priest and some of it went to the bishop. So it became very popular among people who wanted wealth to, be, to buy the position of a bishop because you were, get, you were raking in the money because people knew that part of their requirement for eternal life was to give faithfully to the church. And if they sinned, they'd have to do alms as part of their punishment, and that meant giving extra money. So there was lots of money, plus a lot of people on their deathbed doing everything they can to ensure that they'd go to heaven would donate their, their lands and their money to the church, trying to get into God's good graces. So do you see how this is a pretty good source of income? Now, there was laws against simony, which was the buying of the post of a position. But the Pope got around that by saying, I'll just set a fee for each position of bishop, and I'll just set it so high that only the wealthy person, wealthiest people, can buy it. So it benefited the Pope because he was getting tons of money because of this high fee. And that person was more than willing to spend, because that was a terrific stock investment in getting a bishop. Another problem with this is that one bishop's, Bishop Ferrick gets you some money, two gets you more, three gets you even more. So people would collect 
positions of bishops. Now what happens when you have, where are you Sunday morning when you're the bishop of three locations? You're not going to be there. So the vast majority of these congregations, when they did have clergy, they were ignorant. And a lot of them didn't even have a bishop or clergy come to church because he owned too many spheres. Now, where do you go with reform? The Pope, everything went back to the Pope. But the Pope was an office that was controlled by the Italian Mafia. <laughs> Seriously, there was a bunch of families in Italy who were fighting over the Pope. Some of these Popes were indescribably immoral. I remember Joel once asked the question, who's the next, no, someone, I think Josiah asked me, who takes the Pope's next place? And Joel said, his son. Probably. Probably his son. <laughs> we laugh because we know the Pope's supposed to be chased. But Popes back then, they had nephews, which is what they called sons by their mistress. So for people who are hungry for reform, how do you go about reforming? Because if you try to go to the very office of the Pope, you get a man who is very wise, very biblical, very tender, heart towards the spirit. He's going to get eaten by the political issues of the day. You get someone who's tough enough to handle the politics and the mafia, the chances are he doesn't have much of a heart for God. He's going to be pretty battle-worn. His conscience is going to be seared. Well, what about from the bottom up? Bishops were afraid of losing their positions of money, and anything against the Pope, if they said anything against the Pope, they could be cut off so quickly. There was a, so it was in a very difficult position. How, where can we see reform? Some people tried to reform the laity. There was a fairly successful movement called Brethren of the Common Life. How many of you have heard of the devotional book, The Imitation of Christ? by Thomas Akempis. It's an excellent devotional. It was written by someone who, a, a, a byproduct of the Brethren of the Common Life. And they were focusing on the way to salvation is not by just attending your rituals, but it's by having your heart turn towards love in God through your emotions, through meditating on the sufferings of Christ, on the birth of Christ, on the humility of Christ, and the magnitude of God. Once a pope came, once a pope made it to the top as a product of the Brethren of the Common Life, people were excited. He had to quit the job because he just couldn't handle the corruption was so deep. So I, ho I hope I've given you just a taste of how bleak the picture was uh, towards the end of the 1400s. During the 1400s, there was a movement called the Renaissance. This paved the way for the Reformation in several ways. One of the biggest things that happened during this time was the development of the printing press. Because up until this point, it was astronomically expensive to buy a single book. I've heard some quotes that it cost like a year's wages. So if we might conservatively put a year's wages at 20, 30, 000, that's what we were looking at for the cost of a book. Because some books would take so long to produce. And for, to be a copyist was a terrible job. Because at the end of the day, your wrist, your fingers, the back of your neck, everything just ached. Doing that tedious stuff, 
It was a very painful job. So books were very expensive. Very few people had the luxury. The printing press changed that. And we'll see that the printing press ended up saving Martin Luther's life. But another thing, a mindset started to change. People started questioning the church. They started branching out. See, because no matter how bad things got in the church, the church still had the monopoly over people. Even though it was so corrupt and people knew it was corrupt, the church had the only way of salvation. So no matter how corrupt it was, just like the disciples, when Jesus started talking about how you need to eat my body, Peter said, well, Lord, who else has the words of eternal life? I'm willing to sacrifice my mind right now because you're the only one who has the words of eternal life. Something similar was happening in that people said, who else has the path of salvation other than the church? So no matter how corrupt it was, people were stuck with the church because they knew their mortality and they wanted to go to heaven. But this renaissance brought people who were starting to question the authority of the Pope. They were studying the humanities. Now, you'll hear Desert Deus Erasmus called a humanist. Now, a humanist today is someone whose worldview centers around man, usually an atheist. But a humanist back then was someone who studied the humanities, which was rhetoric, history, ethics, and poetry. Red Before, they had really, there had been a focus on logic and mathematics and geometry. But the humanities were much more concrete. So rhetoric was the art of speaking in a way that would convince someone. You don't just want to use logic, because as anybody who's grown up in a big family knows, logic is not real powerful in convincing your siblings or changing your siblings' mind. Emotion and a good strong fist is. So rhetoric was what was being popular, where people were wanting to learn the art of speaking in a way that can change people's minds. Now, rhetoric in itself is a loaded gun. You don't want to give anybody the power of rhetoric. One of the greatest masters of the art of rhetorics was Adolf Hitler. He knew how to just have thousands of people eating out of his hands. He was a master. So to balance out this power of rhetoric, you wanted to learn ethics. Just how you could, and the place to find ethics, what was right and wrong, was in history, just like I did, using Hitler as an example of how morality can go wrong, and poetry. So there was a move to this, but it was also bringing back the individual, where people want to say, you know, I'm responsible for my own destiny, I, I've, got, I've got questions that need to be answered. So, it was just like dry kindle all over Europe of people who were dissatisfied with the church, whose minds were questioning what Pope Julius had died in battle in his armor. People were disgusted to see the representative of Peter fighting in battle. Uh, King Leo X, who we'll see in a little bit, was spending money at an incredible rate. So people's minds were on fire. Is this all we have? Is there something better? Is there something can, that can be done? And that set the stage for the Reformation. Around 1483, a young man named Martin Luther was born on, 
sometime in November, I think it was 9th or 10th. His parents were, his father was a silver miner, so he was getting to be fairly wealthy. And his father had great ambitions for his son to become a lawyer. As a lawyer, he would bring in lots of money to his parents. Martin Luther proved to be a, a prodigy as a child. School was tough, though, back then when he went to a school where, kind of a, a prep school for further learning, where they were forced to speak Latin. If anybody was caught speaking German, they would have to wear a donkey mask until they caught someone else speaking German. Then they could pass that on to them. Uh, Luther had stern but loving parents. Stern back then meant something else. He once stole a nut, and his mom took a cane to him until he bled. Some people have said, well, Martin Luther's depression and mental instability is because of his harsh childhood. But it was pretty common what he had to face. There was nothing especially bad. He grew up to have a great relationship with his parents. But when he went into law school, he had a very sharp mind, and he was at the top of his class. But when he was about 20 or 21, he was walking home one evening, and there was a terrible thunderstorm. We, in the After the Enlightenment and the Discovery Channel, we are not afraid of lightning. We know about electrical currents and positive and negative charges and what causes the lightning. Back in Martin Luther's time, you didn't know if the gods or demons or angels or some supernatural power was terrified at you. So as he was walking along, a, a bolt of lightning struck so close to him that it knocked him flat. He was terrified, like he was this close to death. He said, Saint Anne, save me. I vow to become a monk. Now Saint Anne, it was the mother of Mary, and she was also known as the patron saint of miners. So he would have been familiar with her coming from a mining family. But he vowed to St. Anne, I'll become a monk. And he kept his vow. His father was very unhappy with him for keeping his vow to become a monk. One of the things that Martin Luther would have had to do to become a monk was to give away all his possessions. Monks this time, some of them, in some places they were saw as, as loose and corrupt, whereas in the 50s they had the farmer's daughter, traveling salesman, dirty jokes. Back then they had the, the monk jokes, because that was their reputation for being immoral. But in a lot of places, monks were still seen as the last place where there was still purity in the church. Uh, there was even legends that Christ was coming on Judgment Day, but he looked down and he saw the Cistercian monks, and he was so pleased with them that he's delayed the second coming. So he, when he became a monk, something started to change in him. I don't know when this happened. Some people, R.C. Sproul points out that his legal training maybe gave him a profound sense of God's law. But something stirred in Luther where he became so aware that he was a sinful man 
and that God was perfectly holy. Now, you know how we live in a world of danger, but we have a part of our brain that shuts, up, shuts off the possibility of danger, and so we are comfortable. We don't feel like we're hanging under the sword of Damocles all the time. We shut that part of our brain off. Some people don't know how to shut that part of their brain off, and they get panic attacks, because they just see that life is full of danger. Well, Luther couldn't shut that part of his brain off that noticed God's judgment and saw that he was guilty before God. One time, while he, he would have these episodes where he was just overcome with terrible anxiety. As he was training to become a priest, the time came for him to do, perform his first Mass. This was quite a nerve-wracking thing for any priest, because you knew that one minute you were holding bread and wine, and the next minute you were holding the body of Christ and his blood in the, in the chalice, in the cup. Well, the big day where Luther's first Mass he was going to perform, his father came, listened to the Mass, and Luther, as he started to do it, started to shake. He started to become paralyzed. It was like he was ushered into the presence of God as a sinful man. And just like Isaiah and Ezekiel and John all trembled in God's presence, Martin Luther just became paralyzed with fear that he was in the presence of a holy God and he was not able to finish. Luther's father was so disgusted. He said, you say you have a call towards the ministry? Are you sure it wasn't Satan who gave you that call? And Luther started to fear that. Maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe it was Satan who was doing this. Luther started to try everything he could to earn God's favor. He fasted. He would wear itchy clothes, much itchier than just, say, wool. Like, sometimes they'd even put nettles or things where it was, your body would just get raw. He would do extreme fasting. He ruined his health during these years and had reoccurring health problems because of how much he subdued his body. Then he tried the way of confession. He thought, well, maybe if I could just confess every sin, then it would be taken away. He'd spend up to six hours tormenting the poor priest who had to listen to his confessions. Sometimes they would get fed up. Luther, go murder someone. Go commit a real sin, then we'll have something to discuss about. But it's just this cycle of feeling so terrified. And in the midst of these struggles, one of his superiors, Father Stoppett, said, you know, Luther, I want to go... <laughs> it's funny what you hear when, instead of just seeing it. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> he said... I want to send you to Wittenberg, where you will become a teacher of the Bible. Luther said, are you serious? In my mental condition, you want me to teach the scriptures? It'll kill me. Just the superior smile. That's okay. God has, God has, and have, has a place in heaven for clever monks like you. But he went, and he started studying the Psalms. And here he encountered in Psalm 22 the angst of Jesus, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he realized, wait a second, this is exactly how I feel in my relationship with God. 
but I feel this way because I've sinned. Why does Jesus feel this way? Unless he took my sins or somebody's sins upon him. So that's why he feels that anxiety. So he started to feel at least a bit of a kinship with Christ. Because when Luther, up to this point, when Luther had thought of God, he thought of severe paintings that showed Jesus as a wrathful king just waiting with a sword in hand, just waiting to come down and kill the population to take vengeance. He saw God as an angry God, and he wanted nothing to do with it. Luther knew that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So the worst sin then to Luther would be to not love God. But Luther could not bring himself to love God. He hated God, and he said he did that. So he felt like he was at enmity with God. But things started to change when he read the Psalms. Next, he moved to Romans. And he was studying the phrase, the righteousness is revealed from God, is, is revealed, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it says, the just shall live by faith. Now, for him, the phrase, the righteousness of God, terrified him. He hated the sound of that because it was just this reminder that he was not righteous. But he continued to wrestle with this text for days. What does this mean? Suddenly he, or suddenly, or over time, we're not sure, but gradually this awareness changed to something that was so freeing to him. When he realized the righteousness of God is not something that he requires from us, it's something that he gives to us so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And it's a gift given by faith, a free gift. And this just slowly, dramatically changed Luther. He, felt, he said it was like the doorway to paradise. This was an amazing truth that started the Reformation. We could be saved not by pilgrimages, not by masses, not by time in the confessional, not by collecting relics. We could be saved by the free gift of God and that when God looked at us, he saw that we were free. This was a traumatic change where suddenly heavens were opened and he now fell in love with God because he had fully tasted the weight of sin. Luther's story is very common. Lots of people who have been used dramatically by God, it seems to be a common theme that every one of them have felt shaken over the pit of hell. Almost every person who has done great, lasting, memorable things has tasted their depravity and tasted what it was like to be outside of God's mercy. I guess that's just an exhortation to you, that if you feel complacent in your walk with God, Develop a healthy fear of God. It said that, one of the biographies of Luther that I read said that, the most impactful reformer is the person who has a fear far greater than any fear that his enemies can instill in him. When Luther stood before one of the most powerful men in the world later on, he had a fear greater than the fear of man. 
he had a fear of God. And we're going to see the difficulties and temptations that Luther faced. And it was that foundational fear of God that propelled him, that compelled him. So that is how Luther became a Christian, how he was born again. We might not have ever heard of Luther. Some historical events happened, though, that took him from a simple monk who was sometimes preaching into an internationally known figure. Pope Leo X was thrilled to be the Pope. At his coronation service, he spent something like a, a million ducats on the ceremony. The ducat was the gold coin of Germany. It's very hard to say what it's worth, but maybe $26. So spending $26 million on your coronation service is kind of an, a tip-off for how you're going to spend the rest of your popacy. Pope Julius had started a magnificent building that was going to be St. Peter's Basilica. And Leo said, I want to take this on. I want this to be my legacy, that I built St. Peter's Basilica. That was going to cost a lot of money. He made a lot of money by creating bishops' positions. He created something like over 2,000 positions of bishops, just so he could sell them for the income. And that brought in something like 3 million ducats. One of these positions, I'm just going to, just a second, I'm going to try to go to another map here. There was a position, I don't know if it shows on, this is the Holy Roman Empire. Now this is Saxony. There's Wittenberg right there where Luther was. <coughs> Saxony was a German state, but it was part of the Holy Roman Empire here. Now I'm not sure where it is, but there was a position of Mainz, the Bishop of Mainz, and Albert, I think his name was Brandenburg, wanted that position, but the Pope, set the price for this bishop position at 10,000 ducats. Now, he didn't have 10,000 ducats. The Pope said, that's okay, I've got a business proposition for you. I will give you indulgences to sell as long as you give me half the profit. So this is a good deal for the Pope because he gets the 10,000 ducats, plus he gets half the profit of the sale of indulgences. What these indulgences were, were pardons, or offer of forgiveness. Into the Roman Catholic mind, there was, we, people's sins were divided up. We had our eternal sins, which would send us to hell, separate us from God. Well, thankfully, we have the blood of Christ. If it's given to us by an authorized priest, we can receive Christ's blood then we don't have to worry about our eternal sins. But we're not done yet. Every day we sin, we commit temporal sins, which need to be worked off through penance. Now what ha would happen was you'd confess your sin to a priest, and a priest would say, you have, you have to say so many 
paster noters or our fathers or you'd have to give so much money or you'd have to crawl so many miles on your knees or you'd have to make a pilgrimage somewhere. These were all ways that you could work off your temporal debt. When you died, any temporal debt that you had was worked off in purgatory. And purgatory lasted a very long time. Just for an example, I think getting to touch the coin that Judas of Iscariot used as he received this payment to portray Christ, that was good for taking off something like 1,500 years of purgatory. So if, just imagine if you could actually have touched an actual beard of Jesus. When Luther went to Rome, he, he visited one of the largest collections of relics. I mean, these, there were shards from the ark. There was teeth, beard from Jesus, beards from John, beard hairs from John the Baptist, rocks that Jesus stepped on before the ascension, all certified by the Catholic Church to be authentic. Now, the Pope had a, has this really cool thing called the treasury of merit. See, as ordinary people, we go to heaven with debt, and we spend time in purgatory. But the great saints, like Jerome or Augustine, they live such exemplary lives that they accumulate more merit than they actually need for the sins that they've committed. So all these saints who have lived have accumulated this treasury of merit where the Pope has the power to, give you, to dip into this account and sell you an indulgence. Now sometimes indulgences were good for part of your sins. These indulgences that they were going to sell to pay for the St. Peter's Basilica were super good. They were plenary indulgences, which meant they'd wipe away all your sins. Can you imagine, like, the ultimate hall pass, the ultimate free ticket to do whatever you want? You get a plenary indulgence. Now, of course, you don't have repeat customers when you sell plenary indulgences because you can only sell to one person. He's good for life. So what do you do then? You start selling indulgences for the dead. Now, of course, these pious people, Leo X and this now Archbishop of Mainz, would not bring themselves down to peddling indulgences in the streets. But they knew of a Dominican friar named uh, Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, who was excellent. He knew how to sell indulgences. He would gather before congregations and say, listen, do you hear that? It's the wailing of your dead mother, the wailing of your grandfather, of your little child. They're pleading for you. They're wailing. They're saying, do something. Are you going to turn a callous ear to their pleading? He says, I've got a little slogan for you. As soon as a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So, I've got a deal for you, and I hope you're from a big family. <laughs> Not to mention, I hope the plague's been through your house. <laughs> How many do you need? These indulgences, he said, are so good that even if you raped the Virgin Mary, these would get you off the hook. 
he went a little too far and started getting in trouble. But he was making good money selling these indulgences, and the money was pouring in. Now, he was not allowed into Saxony because Elector Frederick there had invested lots of money into one of the largest private collections of relics. That was his business investment. People would sin, people would need to come visit my relics to work off their years in purgatory. So if I have Tetzel coming into my territory or another de monks who are monks who are allowed to sell it, they're not going to visit my relic collection anymore. So he didn't allow them into Saxony. However, Luther was well aware of what was going on here because people were traveling, had heard about this amazing sale, and were traveling outside the borders to buy indulgences. This really steamed Luther. So his plan was to write some points for debate. What you did back then when you had a theological debate with someone, you'd write down points or theses for debate. You'd write them in the academic language of the day, which was Latin, and then you'd post it to the community bulletin board where other academics would read this and say, okay, I'm gonna take up this debate. So Martin Luther publicly challenged Tetzel to a debate and wrote down 95 theses and nailed it to the Wittenberg church door on October 31st, 1517. This may not have been a big deal, but some students saw this and said, wow, this is hot stuff. They translated it into German and took it to the printing press where it just exploded and went all over the place. Now the main points, there was 95 points obviously, but a few of these points were, look, people, it's a waste of money to put money towards a building that you'll never see. You're too poor. This building does not help us people of Germany one bit. It would be far better for your eternal merit to give the money to the poor than to buy a single sheet of paper. Another point was the Pope does not have the power to free us. If he truly had power of attorney over the treasury of merit, he should, out of the goodness of his heart, just go around freeing people. He shouldn't be selling it for gold. And another point he made was that people who buy an indulgence are actually putting their soul at danger, in, in risk. Because here they feel like they now have a clear conscience, but he said the only way to truly be saved is to feel your depravity, to feel your need from God, need for God, and cry out to Him to save you. But if you have an indulgence, you're not going to be crying out to God to save you. The Pope heard about this. He said, he's just a drunk German. He'll feel different about it when he's sober. But other people started taking this seriously because of the printing press. These things were spreading all over the place, where they were reading this and they were going, wow, you mean it's actually okay to question some of this stuff? Luther was called before Cardinal Cajetan, and I'm probably butchering the original pronunciations of these names, but that's how it's spelled. Luther at this time fully thought that the Pope and Catholic authorities would be appalled at what Tetzel was doing. And if he could just reason with them, they would completely agree with them. He, at this point, was not trying to rub it in against the Catholic Church. But he was so scared of this, he said, I was so nervous I couldn't ride a horse because my bowels ran freely morning to evening. 
He went there and he thought he would get to debate the cardinal. And the cardinal just said, no, you either recant or you don't. A man by the name of Duke George, who was very interested in this whole question, he was one of the electors, one of the princes, he said, you know, this is actually a good question. I need to know, are these indulgences worth anything? He'd maybe bought them. He just was very intellectually piqued. Are these worth anything? So he had this huge hall. He said, I'm going to stage a debate where this can be held. So in Leipzig, in 1519, there was a huge debate. It was going to be, you see it there, Leipzig right there. A man, a Catholic able debater by the name of Johann Eck was going to come debate the pro-indulgence, pro-Catholic side. And the Wittenberg University was going to spend, send two representatives, Andreas Karlstad and Martin Luther. This was a, there was a huge procession. Things were, the temperature was hot. The Wittenberg side brought 200 men armed in battle axes. Eck had about 70 bodyguards there. They packed the castle that it was held in. They hung team colors. This was going to be a big event. Now, Karlstad was no match for Eck in debate. So Luther took over the point. Now, the start of this, the big point was the issue of the authority of the church. And that was where the Romans wanted to take this, because indulgences, really, realistic, you, you have a very weak case for indulgences. But what was at stake here for the Catholic Church was who has the authority. See, if you can turn your nose up at indulgences, well, then you've put a chink, a doubt in people's mind, and the Catholic Church is going to start losing authority over people's lives. So Eck attacked this point, and he... He called Luther a Hussite. Now, you remember John Huss from Bohemia. He had started coming up right there with these ideas that the scripture should be our final authority, not the church. But he was condemned at a heretic. And he was invited for a hearing with the Pope. And he was told, Feel free to come out of the safety of your home. We promise you safe passage to and from this council. But John Huss, when he got there, was condemned and he was burned at the stake. The people in Bohemia were so angry that they had a, a peasant's revolt, an uprising, that became very dangerous and left behind a very bloody mess. So the people who came after Huss tarnished Huss's name by saying, look, this is where Huss's ideals will lead. They'll lead to anarchy. So Eck, when he made this accusation to Luther, you're a Hussite, he said, you're just trying to store up, stir up this discord, this anarchy. And so Luther, during the lunch break, he went to the library and he started reading Huss's writings and he was amazed with how bang on John Huss was. And he came back to the debate and said, you know what, I will accept that title. I'm, I'm talking about this debate as if this is a civilized thing. Debates back then were not civilized. Luther, who was at a very sharp tongue, enjoyed calling his opponent, whose name was Herr Dr. Eck, slurring the DR into Dreck, 
which dreck is a German word for a special kind of dirt, like horse dirt and chicken dirt. So he loved calling them hair dreck. But Eck responded by calling them hair Lugner, which meant liar. So in this academic debate, we have <laughs> these men referring to each other as Dr. Poop <laughs> and Mr. Liar. Like, it's just... <laughs> but that was, that was par for the course. But it was in this debate that Luther started claiming things for himself. And he actually turned to the German people and said, look, the, our authority of scripture is not in popes. It's not in councils. It's in the word of God. A, a common person with, armed with a Bible has more authority than any pope or council that does not have the Bible. And he said that in German to the German people. Eck responded by saying, you're preaching the Bohemian virus. You're going to restore all the old heresies. Do you, you realize how dangerous it is to let people have private interpretation of the scripture? It's going to splinter into a thousand different denominations, he probably thought. <laughs> this debate went on for 18 days. I've just obviously scratched the surface. And then there was another function, so they had to call it, but it continued on in a pamphlet war. By this time, Luther's writings were all over the place. Luther started attack. He started pleading to the German nobles in one pamphlet, do something about this. The Pope does not have primacy. The Pope is not the vicar of Christ because of a divine authority. He's only that because of a fluke of history. You German princes have the right to reform the church, and he pleaded with them. He started attacking sacraments. He started realizing that once he was in the scripture, that the Catholic Church had added so much to the message of the Bible. And he reduced the sacraments down to three and then down to two. Does anybody know which two? Marriage and communion. No, baptism and communion. The seven sacraments that were there were... Uh, I'm not going to be able to get these in order. Uh, there was confirmation. There was last rites or extreme unction, which was given to you on your deathbed. There was marriage. There was holy orders. There was baptism, which covered the beginning of your life. And the Eucharist. And holy, I don't know if I mentioned holy orders, which would be the monks and the nuns. These were all powers the church had over your life. That you could not legitimately do these things without the authority of the church. Because of the printing press. Now, it's fascinating. Haas's life was similar to Luther's. Haas was burnt. Luther went on to become one of the most famous people in history. In fact, next to Jesus Christ, more things have been written about Luther, someone calculated, than anybody else in history. That's the kind of impact he had. But from the time he posted on the Wittenberg door until 1520, he sold out something like almost 400,000 tracks. I mean, it just went all over Europe. People were debating this, you'll find out, in Scotland, in England. These ideas were just going all over the place. And people who couldn't read heard of them, and so they were, this is a whole new world. They wanted to know, what did Luther say? Luther wrote in a very memorable way. He used 
language, he used spicy language as you'll see, but he wrote in a way that people wanted to hear. Now at this point, the Pope realized that this was no longer just a monk's quarrel. And he sent out a papal bull, which was a warning of excommunication. It was called, Arise, O Lord, for a wild boar has entered your vineyard. We can no longer suffer the serpent to wriggle in your grass. We've counted 41 errors. Luther has 60 days to repent or he will be excommunicated. His books are supposed to be banned and his soul's in danger. When Luther finally heard this, he burned it. Now around this time in 1519, there was the Holy Roman Emperor, who was Maximilian, he died. And they needed to replace a successor. Now, there was Henry VIII in England. There was France, which was down here, which been the House of Valois. Actually, Frederick the Wise of Saxony was mentioned as a replacement for the emperor, but he didn't feel up to it. But a young man, actually a grandson of Maximilian, Charles V, who was born in 1500, so he was only 19 or 20 years old, he became the emperor. Now, as you'll see, he wanted unity, but he, we'll see this tomorrow, he had so much trouble fighting off Francis I, the Turks, and other wars, that while this was blowing up in Europe, he didn't have time to do this. But he did want to get this Luther issue sorted out. Every three years, they would have a parliament. It was called a diet. Now, the only place that Frederick would allow Luther to go, because he remembered what happened to Huss, he didn't want Luther to leave the protection of his realm. The only place he would allow was worms. And I'm not joking. It was called the Diet of Worms, which was like a parliament. And Luther was called to come to the Diet of Worms, and he was offered safe conduct. Luther went to this diet fully expecting to die for his faith. He said, the Pope wants me to recant. I will recant. I once said the Pope was the vicar of Christ. Now I say he's an apostle of the devil. He went there trembling. He had the bravado. But sometime on the way, and this question had been haunting him, and someone had posted this question to him. Are you alone, wise? Are you the only person who's gotten this right for the last 1,000 years? Don't you realize that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to guide the church in their interpretation? See, this idea that Luther was espousing, that a man in his Bible had authority. The Catholic Church had been arguing for hundreds of years. No, you don't. You cannot just come to the scripture and interpret it and expect to get it right. During the Gnostic heresies, I don't know if you remember that, people were coming into the church and saying, you know what, there's a whole bunch of things that Jesus has said that were never recorded in his word, and he's told me about them. The apostles responded with a, with a doctrine called apostolic succession. Now that worked in the 200s and the 300s, because you'd be talking to one or two generations removed from people who had actually visited with the apostles, people who knew Jesus best. And so this doctrine of apostolic succession started morphing into the fact that it was only Peter whose office was succeeded and that they, the Pope could trace their apostolic succession all the way. So the person who held the Pope had the authority of Peter. 
And they also believed that when Jesus said, my, I'll send my spirit to guide you, whenever new, doc, whenever new doctrines were introduced in the church, like transubstantiation or praying for the dead, well, if the Pope authorized it, it meant that the Holy Spirit was guiding the church. So this was the interpretation. So if you wanted to understand the scripture, you needed the interpretation of the church. And the church, that was why the church wanted desperately to keep it in Latin, where it was not in the common people's language. Because they wanted to be able to interpret the Bible for themselves, and they didn't want people questioning it. But this was a very serious issue for Luther. Had, did the Holy Spirit abandon the church? Am I, have I missed something here? He hoped when he got to the Diet of Worms, he could set the message straight. He could, he could figure this out. But when he got there, his good friend, Herr Dreck, said, look, these are your books. Are these yours? His tracks. He said, yes. He said, do you recant them? He thought, oh man, I'm not here to debate this. I just have us to either recant or not. He said, can I have one day to think about this? So he did. The next night, he came there. He was in the presence of Charles V, representatives, bishops, cardinals. He must have felt very small. And they said, these are your books. Do you recant? He says, well, I, I can't just blanketly recant them because there's, they're not all the same type. Some of these books are basic Christian doctrine that even my enemies recognize as well put. I can't recant that. That would really be heresy. Other parts of my books are attacks on the Pope. And everybody acknowledges that the Pope has problems. And some of my books I've, I've made attacks, but maybe they've been too harsh. So basically, at this point he was interrupted. X said, okay, you've made your point. Your early works were bad. Your new books are worse. So tell us, without horns, will you recant? With trembling, he said, look, since you asked me to answer without horns, I will try to answer you simply. Unless I'm convinced by scripture or plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've contradicted themselves in error. I will not recant, for to go against one conscience is neither safe nor wise. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He must have took a deep breath, because he basically just signed his death warrant, and he knew it. He knew anybody from this point on could come and kill him. He would be hunted down. He made that stand. He was now a dead person. He still had 21 days left on his safety, but he didn't, he didn't know if that was going to be good. He left, and on his way home, he was kidnapped, he was blindfolded, and he was kidnapped, and he was dragged away. And he didn't know what was happening. He was taken to a castle. Frederick knew that he would be condemned, and he said, capture Luther, put him in hiding, and I don't even want to know where he is. So he took Luther, and they locked him up. Rumors were spreading that Luther had died. They didn't know, didn't know what had happened to him. He was condemned after that. It was just the formalities, but he was officially made an outlaw. 
which he was until the day he died. When Luther had his blindfold off and realized that he wasn't going to die, he entered this emotional roller coaster. At first, he started, he was tormented. Am I alone wise? Am I just cutting myself off from the true church? If I just damn my soul, not just my body? And then it started swinging back, going, no, I'm right. Did I make a bold enough stand for God? Should I have argued more? Did I lose my one opportunity to speak the truth? He started doubting himself. He had every kind of physical ailment. He had insomnia. He had constipation. He had hemorrhoids. It was just the stress and the abuse he had put in his body. I'm not trying to be crude. These are just real human problems. And he was suffering, and he was in such deep depression. During his time there, he, he started translating the New Testament into German. He didn't know how long he had to life. He had to live, but that there's one thing I want to leave. I can leave the Bible in the vernacular, in the language of the German people. And he started feverishly translating. Now, back in Wittenberg, while Luther was gone, things were starting to fall apart. People were upset. Andreas Karlstad, who became a wild reformer, he started serving communion in both kinds, doing which meant, because up to that point, the peasants had only received the wafer. They didn't receive the wine because they didn't want common people spilling the blood of Christ. And so he became radical. He abolished the holy orders, he, the office of bishop, the, pre, took, the priesthood of all believers. Uh, churches were being smashed. Icons were being torn down. People, it was easy to tear down the church and it was happening in revolt. Around this time, some men called the Zwickau Prophets, came to Wittenberg, claiming, we are receiving direct revelation from the Holy Spirit that is much more valuable than just the Bible. He's the one who's interpreting this for us. Philip Melanchthon, who was also a professor at Wittenberg, who we'll see played, played a much prominent role. He was concerned because these guys were dismissing infant baptism. Luther heard about what was going on. He actually was disguised as Knight George, grew a beard. He came and he saw what was being done. And he was surprised at how fast things were changing. He liked the idea of the clergy marrying, but he was surprised that even the monks were marrying because the monks had taken a vow of chastity and the nuns had taken a vow of chastity. So he said, even if it was wrong, they still made that vow. Shouldn't they be held to it? Then he realized, you know, they made that vow on a misconception. So when he finally came out, there was just increasingly ter increasing turmoil. He wrote his New Testament, which just became a bestseller. It sold something like thousands of copies. I think numbers vary because they're not... We didn't have the internet back then, so I couldn't... <laughs> so numbers are a place not to mention poor accounting practices. But something like five or 6,000 within a few months were sold. Like th this was amazing to get the Bible in your own language. And think about how hungry people are going to be. Because before, you had the church that you did not like, you didn't understand. Suddenly you see the church being smashed down. Your priest is gone. You are so shaken up spiritually. Where do you turn? You can't just... You can no longer go ask your priest. 
you need to find out where is the answers. And the common answer is the Bible. So that's why the New Testament was sold out. Luther, by this time, you have to remember, was in his 40s. And he was writing feverishly. He wrote, started writing catechisms. He started writing hymns. He thought he was going to die at any time, which was one big reason he did not want to get married, even though he was in his late 30s, almost turning 40 at this point when he came out of hiding. But he was happy for all these other nuns. There was a friend, Leonard Kopp. It was illegal for a nun to leave the convent, but Leonard Kopp went in there. He was a herring salesman. He would sell barrels of fish. He emptied the fish, and he packed in 12 nuns into the barrels and took them to Wittenberg. Now, three of the nuns went home, but Luther and his other people in Wittenberg tried to find husbands for these nuns. But there was one especially stubborn woman who they could not find a husband for. Her name was Catherine von Bora. She had been engaged to someone, but as soon as he went home, he married someone else. So he was, she was heartbroken. Luther tried to hook her up with somebody else. She said, no, there's only two men I would marry, this one doctor and, and Luther. But he said, I, I don't want to marry because I, I could die any time. It wouldn't be fair to a wife. He went home and he talked to his dad and he joked about that he was getting married. And his dad got excited and started <laughs> pushing him to get married. And he started thinking about this and think, boy, just think about all the benefits of this. Just think how upset this would make the Pope. <laughs> and he said that was one of his reasons for getting married. It was despite the Pope, it was to bless his father and to seal his witness before martyrdom. He said, I wouldn't trade Katie for anybody. One, because other women have worse faults. <laughs> Two, she's the woman that God is giving to me. So, in 1525, he got married. Now, I need to back up a little bit, because there's something else happened in 1525 that was causing a lot of turmoil. The peasants were facing a lot of hardship. The explorers from the New World were sending back tons of gold and silver, and the population was rising, which was leading to strong inflation. Now the lords, the people who owned the land, did not like that they were having to pay increasing wages to the peasants. So they were trying to bring back laws that said the slaves, just, the peasants just had to work for free, which peasants were very angry about. They were also joined by Thomas Munzer, who was like the Zwickau prophets, who was actually a, a Catholic priest at the Leipzig debate, was convinced by Luther's views became very radical. He said, the Bible's dead. It's Bible, babble, bubble, without, unless you have the Holy Spirit. That's actually what he said. He says, the Holy Spirit has been impressing on me that he wants me to establish a kingdom of peasants, advance the kingdom of God on earth before the second coming. And so he started rallying the peasants. At one point, he had amassed something like 300,000 peasants who were in this peasants' revolt. The priests, the Roman Catholic authority says, Luther, you are buying this. You must be subversively supporting this, that this is your fault. 
Luther said, no, I'm, I'm denouncing this. I'm, I'm arguing that you need to submit to your authorities. That's my principle. But the peasants thought the only person who could mediate for us is Luther. But Luther, when he heard about how scary this was getting, he wrote a tract he later regretted called Against the Murderous Thieving Horde of Peasants. And he instructed the princes to stab, smite, and slay the whole lot of them. Right as this was published, there was a terrible massacre of peasants. Thomas Munzer had said, these peasants were just armed with implements against professional soldiers, farm implements. He said, don't worry, Gideon was scared, David was scared, but God is going to lead us to victory. <laughs> Very dramatic, he said, I will catch the cannonballs in my coat sleeves. And right then, a rainbow appeared. And everybody was, rah, rah, rah. And the princes came in and killed 10,000 of them. Just wiped them out. Right around the time that Luther would, had published this. He felt so guilty. The peasants felt so betrayed by Luther. And this was right around the same time that he was, that he was getting married. In fact, Andreas Karlstad, who had become kind of a part of the Peasants' Revolution, he actually showed up at 11 o'clock on their wedding night asking for protection. So that's the kind of environment he was married into. Luther said, you know, when you get married, there's a lot to get used to. He said, I used to go a whole year without making my bed, and it stunk. <laughs> it was foul with sweat. He said, now... I wake up and there's a pair of pigtails on the pillow where there wasn't one before. But he grew to love Katie. He sometimes called her my rib. He sometimes called her my lord. He sometimes made a pun on Keta, which was German for chain. <laughs> sometimes he said, if I ever get married again, I will hew an obedient wife out of stone if I have to. <laughs> He said, in domestic matters, I defer to Katie. In all other matters, I'm led by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> when he was given, when they had a child shortly after, he took such delight in his kids. He saw little Hans being swaddled in a diaper, and he said, kick little fellow. That's what the Pope tried to do to me, but I got free. Sometimes, though, when he, he'd get exasperated, one time the baby was crying incessantly, and he said, you know what, it's babies like you that have given marriage a bad name. <laughs> and another time, after the kids were all acting up, he said, Look, I know that Jesus said we must become as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. My God, must we really become such idiots? <laughs> that is just a sample of Luther. Katie, though, was amazing. She was a nurse to him. She put up with a lot. Luther was so generous that she had to hide the money so that he wouldn't give it away. In one letter, Luther wrote, said, congratulations on your marriage. I'm sending you a vase as a wedding gift. P.S. Katie's hid it. <laughs> She, he was a, definitely a man with all his time taken up with writing and with preaching. 
We have over 23,000 sermons of his in print. He, he would preach on average three times a week. One year he preached 195 times. This was in addition to all his volumes of writing, all the time he took to, to uh, counsel and write. His uh, dinner table was often full of young men trying to catch bits of wisdom, and he loved it. He would go on and on. One meal, though, Katie was so frustrated, the meal was getting cold. He said, look, Luther, just eat. Your food's getting cold. He said, I wish women would recite the Lord's Prayer before they open their mouth. <laughs> he was so agitated, he wouldn't speak anymore the rest of the meal, even though the students tried to soften him up. Luther has left an amazing legacy. Sorry, I'm going over time. I'm running out of time. <laughs> we could actually be here till next Thursday. <laughs> but Luther's legacy, a lot of people, they try to overlook the last years of his life because that's where you find some embarrassing stuff. He wrote against the Jews. He said the Anabaptists, who we'll learn more about tomorrow, should be put to death. Philip of Hesse, who was one of the princes, he was part of a league that the, when Charles V outlawed, outlawed Lutheranism, they joined together into a league with a formal protest. That's where the term Protestant comes from. But one of their leaders, Philip of Hesse, was a man with a sensitive conscience and real marital problems. He'd been, he'd been married, he had had an arranged marriage at 18, and he couldn't keep up normal relations with her. And so he wanted to marry someone else. Now in his mind, adultery was a big sin, and divorce was a big sin, but bigamy was a lesser sin. Because there's no direct command against bigamy, but there was a direct command against divorce and adultery. So he wrote to Luther about this, and Luther said, well, okay, you're right, it is a lesser sin. Just don't tell anybody about it. <laughs> Which, the word got out, and Charles V used it to leverage against the League of Princes. Luther is also known as being a coarse man. But the thing you have to remember about his time was that it was a very coarse, dirty, smelly, harsh time. Katie once wrote to Luther, he said, there were so many people in church, the congregation reeked. There was no deodorant. Bathing was very little. People were working with manure. They were working with blood. The butcher shops, the lack of sewage. The, like, life was not pretty. And so for a man like Luther, who excelled in every area of speech, it's not surprising that he's going to have a little more spicy language. Near the end of his life, he was blind in one eye. He had gout, which is when your body can't metabolize the, some sort of acid which attacks your joints and you get arthritis and attacks the small bones in your feet. At least that's what it said when I, when I read it. <laughs> but it was, it was very painful for him. He had terrible hemorrhoids, constipation, stomach problems, like it was just, he was in pain and he didn't have aspirin. And so he continued to write 
volumes of sermons. He continued to spend so much work translating the Bible. His Bible is a masterpiece. Luther took great care, sometimes going a month to try to find just the right word. And his goal was that it would sound right. He knew the literacy rates, and he knew that the majority of people who heard this would hear it. So it was more important to him that it sounded right. He said in one letter, we are having such a difficult time getting the prophets to speak German. They have no inclination to give up their native Hebrew for our barbaric tongue. <laughs> he went to butcher shops to see the correct terms for meat so that when he wrote about the sacrifices, he was using the correct terminology. Luther's Bible, 460 years after it was printed, is still very popular. I don't know about now, but in the German language because it sounds so good in German. That is a huge legacy that Luther has left behind because he wrote catechisms that were people's introduction, their basic theology. We have no idea how much we just learn by osmosis as far as basic Christian theology, and we think everybody knows it. Back then, nobody got that opportunity to hear it. So Luther's catechisms were... Luther had also severe depression. One, 1527 was one of the darkest years of his life. It was just repeated attacks. One week, he said he felt like God was absent, and he was hung over the pit of hell, and his heart was full of blasphemies to God. And he did battle with Satan, but he was so depressed. This was a recurring theme in his life. He developed strategies against depression. One was, get angry. He said, the love of a good woman helps. But he said, don't be alone. You're dealing with someone who has 5,000 years of experience. He knows, all, he knows exactly what you're going to do and counter strategies. So he said, don't be alone. Find some joyful friends. Find the company of people who are going to take your mind off what's struggling. He said, music. Music is one of God's greatest gifts to us. It ch it's chased away many a foul plague of despair. He loved music. And it was like, he said, get busy. Those are just some practical advice from Luther on dealing with depression. But as he got older, he very tactfully put it, I am like a ripe stool, and this world is like a giant, and we are soon to be parted. Only Luther would describe the growing old process like that. But for a man who was so miserable, and he finally died around 15, I think it was, his, it's in your syllabus, I think it was 42 or 43, something like that. But when he died, Catherine von Bora said, the world has lost an amazing man. They, they grew to love each other. So I went way over time with that. There was lots of stuff I had to cut out still.